Well, Paul begins this last section of his letter to the church of Philippi, this letter about joy in verse 10 by saying, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. This is the last and 16th time that Paul uses the word joy in this short book. He is saying that he rejoiced greatly in the Lord. This is where joy is found. It, we, we need to be reminded time and time again, this is what joy is. Joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Happiness depends on what happens. Our happiness can go up and down. We can feel happy when things are going well. We can feel sad when things are not going well. That's not what joy is. Joy is in the Lord. You see, our situation, our circumstances are always changing. But the Lord never changes. And so our joy can be in the Lord. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You see, the circumstances under which Paul is writing this letter, it's really a thank you letter. Not just simply thanking the church at Philippi, but thanking God for the church at Philippi. Paul is saying, thank you for sending Epaphroditus to come and to help me. Thank you for sending with Epaphroditus a financial gift to help care for my needs. And Paul here says that he rejoiced greatly when he saw Epaphroditus at his door, when he saw that Epaphroditus had brought financial provisions to help Paul get through the adversity that he was facing while he was in prison. But as Paul is giving thanks, he also wants to remind the church of this incredible thing, that when we have joy in Jesus, we have unconditional contentment. If you're taking notes today, just jot down that phrase, unconditional contentment. Paul says, listen, I was so thankful. I rejoiced in the Lord when I saw that you had revived your concern for me. But then he says in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation, unconditional, there's no conditions, contentment, I am to be content. He says that he has learned this in verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Jesus has been his teacher. And Jesus has taught Paul a number of different subjects. He's walked him through a number of courses. Paul has been through a number of tests and exams. And he has come out the other end with a diploma in contentment. A, a degree in unconditional contentment. The courses that he took are outlined there in, in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. He took a course in being low and I know how to abound. He had a class in abundance and in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty. That was another course that he took and hunger and abundance and need. These were all classes where Paul learned. He went through these different situations and circumstances in his life and he learned the important lesson of contentment. Loved ones, we've been going through some ups and downs in the last several months, haven't we? As a culture and as individuals in light of COVID-19, this is part of God's plan to teach us about contentment. Paul here says that he has learned the secret of living through any kind of situation. And what is it? It's his joy in the Lord. His circumstances are always changing, and yet he has found a way to find joy by trusting in the God who never 
changes. What Paul is teaching here is so contradictory to the prosperity gospel that we so often hear. This idea that those who truly believe in God and those who have enough faith, they will be blessed financially and will never face adversity. They will always be healthy and always be wealthy. That's not what Paul is describing here. Paul says, whether I'm healthy or whether I'm wealthy, whether I'm sick or whether I'm poor, in every situation he has contentment as his joy is found in the Lord. In the book of Proverbs chapter 30 verses 7 to 9, the, the, the writer says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, it's not that we should have all kinds of money. It's not that we should have no money at all. It's simply contentment. You see, if we have a lot of money, we run into the danger of becoming complacent or self-satisfied or self-reliant and turn away from God. If we don't have enough money, then we will fall into the trap of of rather than relying on God and depending on Him, we begin to resent Him and and resent those who have more than us. But Paul says, whatever we face, we can have our contentment in Christ. The word contentment is, is, is also used to describe a city or a country that is not dependent on imports. That, that the natural resources and the infrastructure and the, and the production within that city or that country means that that country is sufficient without the need for external imports from other cities or other countries. What Paul is saying is that I have something in Christ. And, I, and in Christ, I have everything that I need. I'm not looking for anything from the outside to satisfy me. I am fully content. You see, discontentment is looking for imports. It's discontentment that causes so many of us to rack up our credit cards and get into commercial debt that ends up crushing us. It's discontentment that causes us to get into unhealthy romantic relationships because we aren't content in our singleness. It's discontentment that causes us to work too much at our jobs because we want more, always wanting more. But there is so much power in contentment when we know that if we have Christ, we have everything that we need. Then in verse uh, 13, the Apostle Paul gives this incredibly beautiful statement about what he can do in Christ. Verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is one of the most famous verses in the book of Philippians. It's one of the most famous verses in the book of, in the the entire Bible, really. In fact, the beginning of this verse, I can do all things, is what Steph Curry from the Golden State Warriors, he writes in Magic Marker by hand, he writes that onto his basketball shoes before he goes out onto the court. Now, I don't know Steph Curry personally. I I don't know how he understands Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. He doesn't write the whole verse. And I know that when he's thinking about all things, although he can do some incredible things on the basketball court, he hits some incredible half-court shots, he dribbles his way out of a lot of trouble, but it doesn't mean he can do all things. It certainly didn't mean that he could beat the Toronto Raptors last year in the NBA Finals. 
Now, he, he doesn't say, I can do all things. He skips the whole part about through Christ. And so we need to make sure that when we quote verses like this, that we quote them in context, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we also need to read it in the context of the broader verse. This doesn't just mean that we can do whatever we set our mind to. When Paul says all things, he's talking about the things that he had just mentioned in verse 11 and verse 12. Paul says, I can do the plenty thing or I can do the hunger thing. I can do the abundance thing or I can do the need thing. I can do all things. I can go through whatever situation or circumstance because I have this contentment and this joy in Christ. He's the one who strengthens me. So Paul says, in verse 10, I'm so thankful. I rejoiced in the Lord that you gave me this gift. Then he clarifies in verses 11 to 13. He says, but I, I don't want you to think that I'm like asking for more or that I'm needy because I have contentment. Then in verse 14, he goes back. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. So in emphasizing contentment, Paul doesn't want to take away at all this next thing. Here's point number two unselfish generosity. Unselfish generosity. Paul says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That word share, you should have a footnote in your Bible. It can also be translated a fellowship. Uh, that's the same word that Paul uses in uh, chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 where he says how thankful he is for, for the church's partnership in the gospel. It's used in chapter 2 verse 1 to talk about the participation that we all have in the spirit. It's the idea of sharing, fellowship, partnership. And Paul says that you have, you have shared in my trouble. That, that Paul's trouble became their trouble even though they're miles and miles away. They understood that when Paul was going through trouble, that was a trouble that they were to share in. Pastor Norm Miller at Redemption Bible Chapel over in London, another GCC church, says that when we have fellowship, we multiply our joy and we divide our sorrows. Fellowship means that other people's joy becomes our joy. Our joy gets multiplied, but our sorrows get divided. We don't have to carry our sorrows ourselves. We share in them together. That's what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi here. In verse 15, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. That word partnership is the same, the same root word as the word share in verse 14. This koinonia, this idea of partnership and sharing, Paul speaks specifically here in terms of giving and receiving, in terms of financial assistance that the church at Philippi was committed to giving to Paul. And he speaks of their unselfish generosity, that they were the only church at first to support him financially. Then we go on to verse 16. It says, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul says, even going back to as soon as I left Philippi and went to Thessalonica, if you follow in the book of Acts, you see when Paul is leaving Philippi in Acts chapter 16, verse 40, it says, so they went out of the prison. That's when Paul was broken out of prison by the power of God and the prison guard and his whole family got saved. It says they visited Lydia. She was the first convert from Acts chapter 16. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, 
when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the very next place. It's still in Macedonia. It's still part of the city. It's just a neighboring city. And Paul says, even when I was just one city away, I was just right next door. You supported me financially even then. Paul's like, I was barely backed out of the driveway, and yet you were already preparing a care package for me to say that you missed me and that you were standing beside me and supporting me. Paul was so blessed by their unselfish generosity. Again, now Paul is going to switch uh, to, to communicate that he's not looking for more. This isn't one of those backhanded thank you notes that's saying, thank you, please give me more. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul here uses two metaphors to describe what is really happening in Philippi with their unselfish generosity. The first metaphor to talk about their financial gift is the metaphor of finances and banking. Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't this an agricultural metaphor? He says, he talks about the fruit, the fruit in verse 17 that increases to your credit. Well, if again, if you look at the footnotes in your ESV Bible, another way to translate that is, I seek the profit that accrues to your account. That's the way that the NASB, the NIV, and the CSB all translate uh, this passage, this idea of profit that accrues to your account. So Paul uses a financial metaphor to help them understand their financial gift. What is going on here? You see, Paul is talking about something that's more valuable than money. Paul is describing that there are actually two economies at work. There is worldly wealth, and then there is the treasure in heaven that Jesus talk, talks about in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. When Paul talks about a profit to their account, he is talking about heavenly wealth. He's talking about treasures in heaven. There's something more valuable than money. That as the church of Philippi were giving away their money, they were actually gaining treasures in heaven. You see, generosity shows spiritual maturity. Paul was more excited about their growth in ministry than their gift of money. Their growth in becoming mature servants of the Lord. Listen to the way D.A. Carson describes this passage. He says, Paul acknowledges that it was good of the Philippians to help him, but he quickly insists that he is more interested in what this says about their character and what this will mean in blessings on their lives than he is in his own enrichment. Similarly, John MacArthur says, their gift brought Paul joy not because of its personal material benefit to him, but because of its spiritual benefit to them. In Acts chapter 20, Paul quoting Jesus says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a profit that comes in giving. We gain by 
giving. You see, in our world, we would think that the person that gives, they end up with less, and the person that receives, they end up with more. But in terms of blessing, in terms of spiritual favor, the, the, the person that gives is actually the one who receives. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, at, at Hope Church, we talk a lot about money. Uh, not because we're obsessed with money. We talk a lot about money because we teach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, word by word. And the Bible talks a lot about money. We talk a lot about the Bible, therefore we talk a lot about money. And we don't talk about money simply for the purpose of making budget or hitting goals or paying the mortgage, as important as all of those things are. We talk about money because money is an important sign of maturity. It's not just about the bottom line. It's about growing in maturity in Christ. Unselfish generosity is a sign of maturity. So Paul uses this first metaphor of banking and commerce and finances. The second metaphor has to do with temple sacrifice. He, he refers to them in verse 18 as giving a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, when the church at Philippi gave out of their pockets and collected these resources to deliver to Paul, ultimately what was happening there was not just an offering that was given to Paul, it was an offering of worship that was offered to God. When we give joyfully and sacrificially and generously and proportionately, we are doing that as an act of worship. And God is pleased with those acts. And not only is God pleased, God also promises to provide for us when we give in this way. Verse 19 says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God will provide when we give and, and give as an offering of worship to the God that we serve, that God provides for us. Now he provides our needs. Remember, Paul went through he went through hunger, he went through adversity, he went through prosperity. H.B. Charles is clear to, to point out here, God has promised to provide for our needs, not for our greeds. Don't let the prosperity gospel creep in here and mess this up. This is a promise to provide whatever we need in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And then in verse 20, he says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul wants God to get the glory. He wants God to get the glory for the contentment that he has learned. He wants God to get the glory for the fragrant offering of, of a sacrificial gift that they gave to Paul. God is the one who gets the glory. So point one is a, an, an unconditional uh, contentment. Point two is an un an unselfish generosity, and point three is an unstoppable grace. Look how Paul concludes this letter. Verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And if we compare the way Paul concludes this letter with the way he began this letter, Paul just mentioned in verse 21 about saints, greet every saint. In verse 23, he talks about grace. If we go back to Philippians chapter 1, 
It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi and the overseers and deacons, grace to you. Paul begins by addressing them as saints and offering them grace, and he concludes by addressing them as saints and offering them grace. We have a, we have a God who is a God who is gracious, who doesn't treat us the way that we deserve, and his grace is unstoppable. Normal, everyday things that divide us as human beings cannot stop the grace of God. Paul says in verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. We know the church of Philippi had many divisions in it. It went beyond just Syntyche and Euodia. Paul kept hammering this home, this idea of be of the same mind, agree with one another, partner with one another, be in fellowship with one another. And now he says, greet every saint, even those saints that you haven't been on speaking terms with for a long time, go and greet them because we are part of a family. He says, the brothers who are with me greet you. We're, we're brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God by his grace. Verse 22 says, all saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. All the saints. We are saints. Now, the Roman Catholics have sort of hijacked this word saint and used it only to apply as a label that we put on particularly pious and super spiritual uh, Christians. That's, to be saint is, is somehow special and unique among those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, we are all saints. There are hundreds of references to every New Testament believer as saints, that we are all holy ones. That's what the word a saint means. Jesus, by his grace, has made us holy by taking our unrighteousness and giving us his righteousness in the gospel, we are all called saints and we are brothers and sisters. This is our new identity. J. Alec Mateer, uh, commenting on this verse, says, On the surface, the world Paul lived in seems very different from ours, but really the similarities outnumber the changes. The racial, national, social, and religious divisions with which we are familiar are nothing new. It was exactly the same in Paul's world, where Greek despised barbarian, Jew scorned Gentile, and the benefits of Roman civilization were conferred along with the crosses on which national freedom fighters choked their way to an end. But Paul knew of a new humanity which had come to birth, a new people which superseded and transcended man's cherished jingoisms. He urges them to reach across the old barriers which used to divide and to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Christians are to look at those old barriers that would normally divide us, to reach across them Every saint, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of cultural background, regardless of any of those things that would normally divide us. Loved ones, we live in such a divided world. 
Shayon Jayatunga, who's on staff at our church plant, Hope Church Toronto North, recently wrote an excellent article on identity. He concludes in this way. He says, it should come as no surprise to us that the culture's philosophy of identity, which is rooted in what separates and ultimately produces division and disunity, the Bible offers a perspective of hope, one that centers on that which unites us and gives us a solution to the disunity, injustice, and brokenness in the world through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is what unites us. That is our identity. That is what it means for us to be saints and brothers in Christ. And as Paul is exchanging these greetings, saying, greet every saint and all the brothers here. And then he says, including all of the saints in verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household. You see, here's a great example of how God's grace is unstoppable. Paul had been thrown in prison. And that seemed like it was a giant leap back in terms of gospel progress. But remember what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, Paul saw his imprisonment as actually advancing the gospel because all of these soldiers that were guarding him were hearing the gospel and some of them were coming to know Christ and some of them were going and sharing with members of Caesar's household. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that the, the you know Caesar's uh, sons and daughters were were becoming uh, Christians but the household refers to uh, the chief of staff, the servants, the advisors, the counselors, everyone who was sort of working around the palace. And so Paul here is showing how God's grace is unstoppable. You see, Paul went to prison, but in going to prison, he managed to reach the palace. You see, God's grace cannot be stopped. You, you try to chain the gospel. You try to throw gospel preachers into prison, and yet God, his grace is unstoppable. People in Caesar's household have come to faith in Christ and are now considered saints and brothers. You see, God's grace is such an incredible thing. And that's why Paul says in verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He begins with the word saints and the word grace. And he ends with the word saints and grace. You see, grace isn't just something that we need when we're first converted to Christianity. Grace is what carries us along. We need grace from beginning to end. It's grace that saves us and it's grace that sanctifies us. It's grace that secures our place in heaven and it's grace that prepares us for heaven. It's grace that transforms us more into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it's all found in Jesus. This is a book about joy. And certainly the 16 mentions of the word joy make that very, very clear. But loved ones, the name Jesus, the name Christ, or the name Jesus Christ appears more than, more than, where's my stats here, more than 42 times in this book. If you want to have joy, you have to have Jesus.
You see, Jesus is the one Paul said in chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9, he's the one who became obedient to the point of death and has been exalted above every name. He's the one, chapter 3, verse 9, who has given us his righteousness. In chapter 3, verse 20, he's made us citizens of heaven. Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, he gives us peace with God. Chapter 4, verse 13, he gives us strength to do all things in all circumstances. And chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, he's made us saints and brothers and sisters. Loved ones, if you want to know joy, you have to know Jesus. You have to know his grace. You have to understand what do I deserve and what have I been given in Jesus. So let's pray together that we would be able to reflect upon and think about and live out the principles found in this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace that saves sinners so that they can receive forgiveness. God, we thank you for the examples of, of generosity that we have in the church of Philippi who are willing to so freely give because they understood what they had been given in Christ. Lord, help us to live lives of generosity, lives of contentment, lives that bring glory to you. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name.